Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello, Nomadges. Welcome to Books and Nachos, where we are finishing our look at the Harry Potter series of books with this, I'd say, epilogue. It's an addendum. It's not required reading. It's that summer extra credit reading you could do that when you came back in the fall, you got a little extra points on your grade for. I'm Arnie, co-host. And Stuart. And Brock. And wow, you must have fantastic beasts on the mind to call yourself a nomad. Here in this book, I think they call them muggles still. They do, but over at Now Playing Podcast, we are covering the Fantastic Beasts films, so I thought I would just pick up some of the Fantastic Beasts terminology. I'm a little curious, which came out first? Fantastic Beasts 1 or Harry Potter and the Cursed Child? This by six months. Okay, I'm trying to figure out where J.K. Rowling's imagination lay. Did it Was she laying seeds in book seven that she could then grow in the past with her movie franchise? Or was the last scene in book seven a hook to move forward with? The latter. The last scene was something they decided to start with once they started getting an earnest into what the play would be about. From what I've read about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, J.K. Rowling was approached numerous times by numerous people to do a play adaptation of Harry Potter, and she was completely uninterested in doing a play version of one of the seven books that she has already written. My favorite thing that I read just seeing that is, in addition to plays, Harry Potter on Ice. (laughs) Yes. Which, honestly, they make a ton of money with those Disney shows on ice and things like that. How could you not want to see Voldemort skating around shooting people with Vada Kedavra? I mean, come on, that'd be great. Well, let me just back this all up, because yes, we're here to review a play. It's not a book. This was put on stage, and then they printed the words that people said with stage directions in it a couple years afterwards. But this was meant for a different medium. Why did Rowling say no more books? I don't get that. She completed her Harry Potter and Voldemort story, so she had no interest in going back or doing more stories on that. What we're talking about at Now Playing is her decision to go back into the wizarding world as long as it has nothing to do directly with Harry Potter's turn with Voldemort. But here with The Cursed Child, it's completely the continuation of Harry Potter, and it still has a lot to do with Voldemort, if not literally, definitely because of what happened with Voldemort. It's kind of strange that she said yes to continuing the story in this format versus her writing a novel herself. I also want to point out that I think this is the first time we've ever reviewed a play here at Books and Nachos, right? And I am in the strong camp of plays are meant to be seen, not meant to be read. So for me, reading this play, I can visualize as much as I can, but reading a play and reviewing it like a book is going to be a challenge. 
Yeah, I've read many screenplays, and they are meant to be blueprints. They aren't meant to stand on their own. But there has become an appreciation for the art form. There is a talent to being able to write economically the way, well, in a play, uh, you're encouraged to write dialogue. I mean, I think that's the challenge. You want to be able to say it all. The stage directions are pretty minimal. You don't want to be telling people what to do. That's the director's job. You want to have them say great things. It's also worth pointing out that maybe the reason why this didn't end up as an eighth published book is that we can't be sure that Rowling really wrote any of this. She is a story collaborator, but the names I see on this book are John Tiffany and Jack Thorne. Right. John Tiffany was the director of the piece, and he was approached by the producers who had the only successful pitch to Rowling about a play because they knew the guy. So Tiffany collaborated with Jack Thorne on other projects, and Rowling collaborated with Thorne. So Thorne would write the pages, send it to Rowling, Rowling would review and say this or that, blah, 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 and they got along swimmingly. But yes, he wrote this with her story contributions, and obviously, you know, would Hermione do this? Would Harry do that? All right, so let me back up to Stuart's question. I get what you're saying about she didn't want to write any more Harry Potter stories, but do you know why she decided she would write screenplays and allow this play to be made, but not, for example, write Fantastic Beasts as books and write this as a book versus the way that they ended up coming out? If you're asking me for a definitive answer, I don't have one on that. I think this one is because she didn't actually write it. She contributed to in the Fantastic Beasts stories. She decided to write those screenplays. And technically, she's speaking. She's not writing books. So that's probably the answer. As simple as that. But in all the research I've done for both Now Playing and for this particular podcast today about Cursed Child, I have had nothing about why she has decided that this is not the same thing as writing a new book. She has come out and said this is... Canonical. This is what happens to Harry Potter. Were she to write another book, this would be taken into account. Now, I've heard George Lucas say the same thing about a library of books that are sitting behind Brock right at this moment, and then Disney came along and hit undo on that button. But (laughs) according to what Rowling is saying, we take this as the eighth story. Now, I wanted to see this on Broadway. I really did. I'm not the Harry Potter fan, but the last time I was in New York... Go figure, February of 2020, right when a certain disease started to spread throughout New York City, I decided I had a free day, and I'm like, someday we're going to review Harry Potter. I don't know when, but I know this is coming down the pike. I should probably see this play. And so I go to get tickets and find out it's two days. Mm -hmm. It is not like just going to see a play. It is like... A vacation. (laughs) Yes. Angels in America and this. Yeah, but Angels in America had part one one year, and a year or two later had part two. This one has parts one and two running concurrently. So Arnie, did you, is it one ticket price for both parts, or is it individual ticket for one and individual ticket for two? Individual tickets. You had to buy two tickets for two days. Yes. While they were writing this play, they decided that it's too much of a story to do one, we need to do two, and we're going to do two. Time be damned, and money be damned, and, and they do all that kind of stuff. I've never heard of anything like this in my life, that you have to see part two of a play. It definitely is a part one. It's remarkable. 
that they decided that to do this in two parts on Broadway and in the West End for an astronomical cost. Yeah, you say money be damned. The way I look at it is they get two tickets out of everybody. Sure. But what about, Arnie, what about the kids? Seriously, there are children who desperately want to see this, right? People who are of younger ages, and each play themselves are two and a half hours. You're asking families to pay $200 a ticket average, right, between the lowest and the highest tickets, right? Say, say $200 a ticket for two and a half hours of a show, either in one day, see a matinee and an evening show, if that's the way it's running that day, or go back the next day to see the next show. It's bonkers to me that they would even think that you could do that with kids. But guess what? I'm wrong. Everyone's <laughs> doing it. Everyone's going to see both parts. Yeah, well, I mean, they're seeing two Deathly Hallows films, and those are two and a half hours apiece. But, you know, you said that there was too much story. They couldn't do it. Well, somehow, during a pandemic, they did it. Because <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> if I went today, I, I looked. I almost went to New York in February. They canceled Toy Fair again, but I thought I was going to go. And I'm like, I got a chance again. Now I knew we were doing Harry Potter I can go see this damned child. I ended up not going to New York, but I found out they have somehow compressed it into one day. They have abridged the story that we read. I don't think there is any way to see the play as it was originally envisioned anymore. In the United States, there's not. In London, and I believe Australia, they're still showing it in two parts, but not here in the U.S., we could, of course, attack this as greed, but I want to just put it out there that Rolling has always been on the forefront of creating large-scale children's entertainment. Those books were enormous. Who would have thought children would want to read an 800-page book? It makes sense that if you're going to do Harry Potter, you're going to make it as epic as those book lengths. I think... There is a precedent for having two parts of, of theater, and while I would prefer to see this show in one sitting, three and a half hours long versus maybe two hours, two nights, mm, it depends on how young your kids are, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. And how much money you can drop and how long you're visiting New York or all these other factors as well. So while reading this play for this review... I did the best I could to try to visualize what they were doing and how they were going to do it on the stage. But I was lucky enough to pick up the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child behind the scenes, The Journey. And it, in addition to talking a little bit about how the collaborators came together, it had a lot of cool pictures and talked about how they solved, say, the Dementors. And they didn't go into how the magic tricks were done. They didn't want to break the illusion. But they definitely made sure you knew that there was plenty of magic and illusions as well as lighting effects and staging effects. So I can totally imagine in my head one thing, but to actually see the pictures confirmed that this must be, regardless of what we think of the plot and the story and the characters, on stage this thing must be a, a spectacle to behold because they're doing all sorts of cool visual and theatrical experiences for the audience to enjoy. So that's something that we can't review here. It feels like next level. If you're going to bring Harry Potter to Broadway... Oh, for sure. You're going to have to up your game. And I agree. When I read this play, I felt like, wow, this is easily a, a screenplay. It would be much easier to do this. There are so many scenes, so many special effects shots. It would be so much easier just to film this than to try to figure out how you're going to do it live on the stage. 
That's that's correct. I agree. I couldn't even figure out how some of this would be done between the scenes. And while I was reading, I tried to envision it as a play. But hey, we are books and nachos. So yes, we're going to be reviewing. They published a book. They put a book out there <laughs> and said, this is an item worth paying for. So let us review that item as they put it out, knowing that we weren't able to see the stage play. And we're going to make no pretense about that. Right. Although if we did, I just want to point out this thing swept the Tonys. It won best play, it won best direction, scenery, costumes, lighting, sound design. People were impressed with it. Right. The technical aspects on Broadway and the Olivier Awards, which was a year before in London on the West End, also won for Harry Potter and Hermione. And Draco's son, I believe, uh, Scorpius. Three actors won as well as all the technical awards. But on Broadway, the actors did not take home the prize. And they treated it as one play. They did not treat it as two parts. They treated it as one long play for all the awards ceremony, which is also something of note. Um, Which version of the play did you guys read? Because they came out with the rehearsal script, which was the one that came out the day of when the premiere came out, because they obviously couldn't keep the secret secret anymore. So they published it the day the the show went up in the West End. And then after they, you know, tweaked it or this and that, they had a second version of the play that had changed dialogue, but it's mostly the same. So do you guys know which version? I had the original one that they published. That's the only one that was available to me. So that's what I read, which was the original one, not the revised. I, I have the final version. They, they make a point of saying, this is it. I have whatever Amazon Kindle gave me, which I'm guessing would be the final version, but I didn't see anything jumping out at me that said, this is it. Right. Okay. So again, it's the same story pretty much. What I'm talking about is dialogue was changed here or there or uh, maybe a stage direction, but it's basically the same thing. So I'm not going to worry too much about that, but I want to throw that out there to the listeners right now. There are technically two versions of this running around and apparently maybe a third once they release the condensed version of the show. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What we're reviewing is basically four different acts, two different nights, two acts each night. Exactly. And picking up amazingly where I said that it felt like the button had been put on. Well, you're done. Harry's sending off his child to Hogwarts. What else needs to be said? Apparently, there is a lot because that's exactly the scene that they start with. And I think the play wisely, it might feel overstuffed, but it wisely wants to connect to every single book in the franchise. I feel like there are characters from all seven previous Harry Potter stories that will make appearances. Hmm, I hadn't thought about that. My thought was actually, wow, she's focusing on what was a lot of people's favorite books. I saw book four everywhere, and, you know, there was a little bit of some characters from other ones, but I can't say that I checked off boxes that made me think part two was well represented. Moaning Myrtle. Moaning Myrtle is there from part two. Part three has the Time Turner. Part four, of course, the Triwizard Tournament. Book five is where I would say I'm kind of scratching my head on what... Umbridge shows up. Sometimes it's just references. And then they find a way to work in Dumbledore, who we know in book six dies. So that was kind of clever. Right. Dumbledore and Snape is the Half-Blood Prince, so he's in there. They have, they have him in there, too. So they find a way to go back. Obviously, the uh, Hagrid from book one, when he first comes to pick up Harry, is recreated. Of course, they go back to the beginning. Um, they have a flashback of the parents. With Moaning Myrtle, I just want to say, though, she's also in book four and plays a big part of book four. So okay. there's a drop mentioned to Ginny being possessed, I suppose. But to me... This felt like a lot of ruminating on book four and Cedric Diggory 
as played in the movie by Robert Pattinson, which I have to wonder if that's one of the reasons they picked that character. So the reason they picked, I think, the Triwizard Tournament is because of the horrific, and I cited this in both our Now Playing and our Books and Nachos, the scene where Amos sees his son dead. And it's heart-wrenching as a parent especially, but I'm sure for everybody else too, that, you know, the seer Boyd is lying there dead. He was the spare. I agree with Voldemort. It's not heart-wrenching. You're wrong. It's heart-wrenching. So, it, so what they did was they took that as a starting point because the scene at the end of Deathly Hallows is the boy scared he's going to go into Slytherin. So they made this whole thing about fathers and sons. And what better way to tie it all together to have Draco's son and Harry's son and then you have... Amos and his longing for his son, it's all about fathers and sons, and that was the in, and that's what made Rowling think this is a good idea to do this particular story. That's exactly their in, and that makes complete sense to me. Going back into the movie, going back into the Triwizard Tournament with a Time Turner is a choice that I found suspect. Instead of, you don't want to write a new novel, you don't want to, you said the story is already finished, you don't want to do it. But going back into stuff we already know, why not just take a starting point instead of going backwards, keep going forwards? Because that's what people wanted. Because what she got approached to produce was just tell the books you that people like in play form. That's why. And so they find a way to have their cake and eat it, too. It's this new story that largely subsists on moments we already know. And there's a lot of echoes and callbacks. I mean, like you said, Stuart, we start on that platform and they're going to blatantly call out. I feel this way about a lot of plays. I definitely feel this way about this one. Some of the dialogue is very obvious and they're like, (laughs) we have to get on this train and pick our car very carefully because this is where... Harry and Ron and Hermione became friends for life. So whoever we're sitting with, we're going to be friends with for life. So we've got to be very careful. And, you know, we saw Draco Malfoy in both book and movie form on that platform as well. Draco found a wife and reproduced and was taking something to the train to go to Hogwarts. And so wouldn't you know it? Harry Potter's son and Draco Malfoy's son decide to sit together and share chocolate. Maybe. Again, it's a rumor. And just, you know, because the Scorpius Malfoy is bullied, they're saying that he might actually be the love child of Voldemort. And that's kind of how bad it is for the Malfoys now. 19 years later, they are the unpopular kid, the bullied, the Neville, if you will. Right. And Albus is feeling the pressure of being the son of the boy who lived. It's an interesting dichotomy, and I kind of like the idea. I like the premise of the two boys being friends. I like the idea that they're both struggling with what their fathers and their grandparents have done before them and the burdens of those things they have to deal with. I did not enjoy any of this love child of Voldemort stuff throughout the play. My favorite parts of this play were the friendship between Albus and Scorpius because of what a real friendship feels like. And also it kind of feels like, you know, like an unspoken love. Like they actually could probably end up together and it's not called out at all. I so thought that's where it was going. And in fact, I feel like that's how it's written. It is. And that they're going to make some dropped references to girls to be like, but we don't want that gay stuff. But this does feel (laughs) like a love affair. I definitely think it reads that way. And I don't even think that they're trying to misdirect with they have girlfriends. I really think that it's there if you want to see it. And if you're someone that doesn't want to think about that or actively is against that, 
then you, there's wiggle room for you to have your safer interpretation. But I definitely think that it reads as a forbidden love story between, yeah, a, a disappointment. How could Harry not be chagrined that his son has gone to the evil house and isn't good at Quidditch, isn't really good at anything? I mean, if you want to take that a step further, as far as this goes, there's the stereotype of the parents being, especially the father, being disappointed if the son is gay. You can't produce offspring for me. I wanted to be a grandfather. So, yeah, there's that parallel here, too. This is a disappointing son who's not living up to father's expectations. Yeah, that is the cursed child. Although, I would actually argue the play... By the end of it also tries to make the argument that Harry himself is also still a cursed child because he is still plagued by thoughts about Voldemort. And they want to keep that in there because obviously Voldemort is essential, really, to the whole saga. That raises the question, Stuart, why is this called the cursed child? Who is the cursed child? I mean, you said it could be Harry, you said it could be Albus, it could be Scorpius. Cedric as well. I mean, again, look at the poster. I think the poster is really smart for this play. You see see a snitch like a golden snitch but inside of it it's like a bird's nest and you see like an inner child huddling it doesn't necessarily look like harry i think it could represent all of the main characters and their inner turmoil this is a a psychologically traumatized harry potter cast they all are cursed children because i swear to god i thought from the title this was going to be harry potter middle-aged horror investigating a cursed child I thought it would be like that. I didn't have any idea this would deal with Potter family dynamics. I thought that we were just going to have him go out on an adventure. It's theater. I mean, if you were doing a movie or a cartoon or something, that's what you would do. But think about Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Like, they bring in Greek myth and Arachne and all of that. They're going to bring in theater. Like, it's going to be about the things that theater is good at. They're not going to just tell an adventure. I don't like the going backwards. I don't enjoy how they turn him into Voldemort. I don't enjoy that they use Polyjuice Potion before the end of Act 1. I don't enjoy the Time Turner comes right in there. What they do with it in Act 2, 3, and 4, it kind of grows on me. But that first act, especially when everything with Time Turners and Polyjuice Potion talks about Voldemort being a love child, I thought we were going to get a new story, not rely so much on the past stories. And so that kind of annoyed me and irked me. But would that be wise? particularly if you are then saying you basically have to have seen all the movies or read all the books. I think the majority of the people who are in this theater probably already have, but I understand your point. There certainly are. It's going to be like a grandmother or something taking their grandkids who has no idea, right? Mm. Many a parent, yes, that has not dug into this. Again, I would think most parents nowadays either read them to their kids or read them when they were younger. I know plenty of people in my circles or have that to be true. I, I'm, I would think aunts and uncles, older people who can afford to take their grandkids to the theater probably don't know these stories at all. And so the backstory for them would be fine, yes. Especially in Act 1, things were not jiving for me. When they do the Back to the Future 2 stuff and go back into the old movies and books... That became a little bit fun. And then, of course, you know, they keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Finally, by the end of the play, in part two, they come around to the payoffs. But getting there for me as a Harry Potter fan, I was having a lot of trouble coming on board with this. It kind of felt, and this is something that I am not alone in thinking. This is, a lot of fans think this, of Harry Potter. This is like fan fiction. It reads like fan fiction in the beginning, especially in Act 1, that this is something that somebody would write and put on a website. 
I'll say this, the first act is slow to read. I imagine it might be something really nice to see, but we're picking up right where book seven ended, but we're not going to stay there very long. We're going to have a montage of years that is just going to pass. It feels like they wanted to start where they did just because of the tie to the previous book, but then they really want to get these kids to an age where Harry Potter was around the time of the Triwizard Tournament and start to give them an adventure that they wouldn't be too young to do. Yeah, that's where I really feel like you miss out reading this. Because, yes, there are so many, I don't even call them scenes. There are these little moments where I imagine the light comes up on a little set and somebody says three words, and then that set goes whizzing off and they're somewhere else. Like, in movies, it's easy to jump locations. But in plays, you have to be strategic about what moments you capture and what people are expressing in in those scenes. And, yeah, it feels more like a screenplay than a play play in that first act because they are covering so much ground. Part of the thing that comes up, though, right here in this early part of the book, and it's going to be the major theme, the chosen one Harry Potter is a bad dad. (laughs) It'd be boring as heck if Harry Potter was good. We just read seven books of Harry Potter. Was he ever naturally good at anything besides Quidditch? No. Oh, yeah, that first first book, everything he would try, he was naturally good at. Yeah, everything is actually my answer to that, but yes. Well, <laughs> I still think that it makes complete sense to me where they went with Harry Potter in this. He never had a father figure in his life, just like Luke Skywalker didn't have a Jedi Master in his life for very long to teach him what the right and wrong way to do things or come to your own conclusions based on multiple influences in your life. Harry had father figures in and out. We talked about that the past seven weeks, right? So for me, it makes complete sense. The guy doesn't really know what he's doing as a parent, but also I didn't know what I was doing either when I first started as a parent. And I honestly probably still don't. I'm just doing the best I can. And Harry did the best he could. And with two of the kids, he's doing okay. With this one, he's having trouble connecting with. And I think that is a wonderful thing to show on stage. It also makes him He is the chosen one. He is the hero of these stories, but he also makes him much more accessible. Uh, Again, uh, one of the things about Harry Potter is that he, regardless of what his past is, when we read these adventures with him, he very much is able to take us on his journeys and we can associate with him in different levels. I really like that they did this with Harry Potter. My problem is when I read fan fiction, I read a bad Star Wars novel, I read continuations of stories when they constantly rely on what I already know is what pisses me off. You have to go somewhere new and do something different. Yes, you have to start somewhere, which is what Act 1 is doing. They're starting somewhere, and that's why the play gets better as it goes, with that they take these ideas and they build and build and build. Thank goodness. But that first act was constant fan service to me. It was hard for me to want to want to see time turning, and right away, and Polyjuice Potion and all that kind of stuff. Not right away. I mean, it is the end of Act 1 where we get introduced to the idea that they have a time turner. For the most part, yes, it's a litany of reintroducing the school, but seeing a Harry Potter that isn't liked, that isn't doing particularly well, that is kind of failing and resentful. It's, you know, what if Harry Potter were average and not special? The thing that is new, the thing that they introduce that is not a familiar character is Delphi, a supposed relation to Cedric that very much tempts these two boys into, you know, Harry and Ron were always getting into trouble, but they never wanted to resurrect the dead, as far as I can recall. Yeah, this is Cedric's cousin and caretaker of Cedric's father. 
who has tried to get a time turner so they can go back and save his son. He storms into Harry's house, demanding it because the ministry had captured one. Again, once that Pandora's box is opened and you've introduced time travel in part three, it never can close again. (laughs) Yeah. My complaint is with the fact that it ever existed at all. If they're going to use it here, you have to be mad that they used it in Prisoner of Azkaban. Right. And what they did here, though, they said, we only can go back in five minutes at a time, as opposed to hours at a time like they did last time, which I thought was um, good conceit, especially for a stage play. They only have a limited amount. Five minutes seems a little short, <laughs> but I kind of like the idea there's there's limits as opposed to uh, no limits. They can go back years, though, and eventually they do go back many, many years, right? They go, gosh, they go 19 years, and then they go 30 years or whatever. It's remarkable how far back they travel, but only five minutes at a time, which I thought was a good way to, as you said, before have your cake and eat it too yeah and that's act two act two is about trying to fix the past you know they will go back to the three contests we remember from the triwizard tournament and each time if we foil cedric then he won't wind up being a victim of voldemort that's the logic and of course it winds up leading to weird futures where ron and hermione are not together and she's no longer the minister of magic all sorts of different things That first one is very weird how they get there. It's like, they take away Cedric's wand while he's fighting the dragon, in case you don't remember what the first contest was in the Triwizard Tournament, and that leads to Hermione not going to that ball with Victor Crumb, which leads to Hermione and Ron never dating, and thus never getting married and having children, yada yada. That is such an odd stretch to me that those two who seemed to have feelings for each other before the dance, which is why Hermione was so mad at being asked as the backup, that they went to that dance together and it never developed. I get what they have to do for this story, but that one seems like much more of a stretch than the one that's going to happen the second time they try. I do like that they call out like the butterfly effect stuff. I did like the fallout of time travel. This one was kind of like a wet your beak kind of thing because the next one is a disaster, right? So it's kind of nice that they show us if they're going to do this and also they have the, you know, the one, two, three, they have, they have uh, anticipation for the audience and we know they're going to try three times this way and it starts to come together a little bit more. They also have this, in act two, they have this great duel that reads really well. I can only imagine it looks really great on stage between Harry and, and Draco. But one thing that did bother me was, it seemed to me that you guys picked this up, that Delphi remembered the previous past just like the boys did but she didn't go back in time with them maybe i misread that or maybe that was something was fixed but when my copy she definitely remembers that the boys went back in time and changed time when she shouldn't if she did not travel back with them but that's a minor minor complaint in the grand scheme because them going back in time and seeing how things that they set up in the first act got changed it read okay it started to come around and i was starting to enjoy myself a little bit more yeah, I think the the reason why I kind of overlooked that is you have the feeling early on that she is a malevolent character, that she's up to no good. You may not figure out she's Voldemort's daughter. That won't come about until, what, the end of Act 3. But you definitely can sense that she's a devil on a shoulder, tempting these boys to do something they should not. Right. I didn't get it. I've got to say that I was fooled. I thought that this was Ron, Harry, and Hermione all over again, and Delphi was kind of the Hermione. Well, yeah, good call there. That's probably what they were going for, and I'm glad it worked on you. I kind of, I figured it out a little earlier than the play wanted me to. The big twist of her being Voldemort's daughter, I did not figure out. I mean, how could you? Right. 
And the reason they gave for that is because Bellatrix gave birth before the Battle of Hogwarts. We didn't see her pregnant at all. Maybe it's different in Magical Peoples. I don't know. It just seemed like really far-fetched that that whole thing could possibly happen. Really did not sit well. That aspect of it I don't need. And she could just be evil or a descendant of Voldemort, not literally have to be blood. That was really weird, and I did not like that whatsoever. It was weird, and the thought of Voldemort knocking boots without his nose and everything is strange that it was Bellatrix, and Bellatrix was married. It, you know, it became sort of satanic ritual, Rosemary's baby type thing, but I went with it. I kind of like it for that reason. Yeah, I didn't think about it too hard. You, you want to get Voldemort in here, and this is the way they do it. Yes, and they have Harry transform in a way that we have never seen in a Harry Potter story. In the Fantastic Beasts series, they're able to do this without Polyjuice Potion. You can transfigure yourself into a human, not just an animal, and he's able to transfigure himself into Voldemort, which they already brought up Polyjuice Potion earlier. I mean, I guess they could have figured out a way to do Polyjuice Potion, but they didn't. They went with Transfiguration, which I'm sure on stage is awesome. But again, for me, it, as a Harry Potter fan, since this was not something I was understanding was possible or knowledgeable for Harry to do or accomplish, it kind of seemed like an easy way out. Another, another easy way out for the playwright. This sounds like some of the beef, because it's worth pointing out, this play, although decorated with awards and critical good notices, doesn't seem to be that popular with the big fans. Like, uh, there is a lot of grumbling about such complaints. It seems like if you really love the books, you're angered by artistic choices that they make here. I promise you, if all this on stage, the spectacle of the entire thing, I'll be probably into it. Not a problem. I can totally see in my mind, and then based on these pictures I've seen, how amazing this would be on stage. The story itself is thin and weak, and an excuse to have a Harry Potter on stage. It does not play like an epic story. It does not play like a canon story to someone like me, who knows these stories inside and out. Yes, it's a play, and a big aspect of the play is on the stage with the lighting and the scenery and the costumes and the special effects in this particular situation. So I started off this entire podcast saying I believe plays should be seen and not read because when I'm reading this just as dialogue, just as a plot, just as characters, I'm finding things to like and I can give it as much chances as I can, but I'm finding it to be very thin, very weak, and not what I would go to theater normally to see a play with. Like when I see a musical, you expect thinner characters. When you see a play, you expect some meat. There's not a lot of meat here. The meat is that these are damaged children. I mean, I do think that there is something small and intimate here, that it isn't grandiose wizard battles and all of that. They're going to work that in here. But again, what they're focused on is father and son and what changes between day one and day two or act two and act three is the fact that we lose Harry and his child. That in Messing With Time, we actually see that, well... This abused, unpopular Slytherin kid, Scorpius Malfoy, suddenly becomes the Scorpion King, and he's as cool as Harry Potter ever was. And is he going to stay in that future? That's kind of where they set him up in the second night that I think is interesting. It is strange. I'd thought Albus to be the main character in the story, and then they switch it, and it's Scorpius for what I consider the most exciting act of the play. I mean... If you like Harry Potter and want to revisit that world, I cannot imagine not being excited by the alternate reality this brings up. I mean, this reminds me of some of my favorite episodes of Star Trek, where they have those alternate timelines. Not just Mirror Mirror, but also that one where Tasha Yar didn't die and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Act 3, when 
Albus doesn't exist and Scorpius finds himself in that different situation with the stuff with Snape, with Hermione, with Ron. I'm loving that part. It's phenomenal. I think it's the alternate 1985 and Back to the Future too, right? But here, I really like seeing Snape again. And I really like how Scorpius had to convince Snape's Doc Brown in the situation to who he is and where he came from. And we see Hermione and who goes by Granger. Now, all that stuff, I loved it. I ate it up with a spoon. So if you did that faster, quicker... If that's what the story was about, that you eliminated Harry Potter, I would enjoy that much more. I think if you were to abridge this into one night, you wouldn't go back to every tournament. You would just go back to the one that erased the Potter line. Wouldn't that be interesting to watch? I would enjoy that much more. And Yeah, it gets to the point quicker. And this is the aspect that I really enjoyed of the show. So we're all in agreement that Act 3, it really takes off. And it's nice to see that because... Do they need to have the first two acts to get Hermione and Ron there? No, I guess not, because we already know where they ended up together at the end of the seventh movie. The one thing that got me with this is the return of Snape. And because of how I'm reading this, it's a play, and I'm reading it picturing actors from the movies there, and it kind of wrenched my heart a little bit, because I'm like, how great would it be to see Alan Rickman as Snape again? To see him reprise that role, and then the fact that he's passed away, it really, it really made this, it put a cloud over Act 3 for me to know that it wouldn't be Alan Rickman, but somebody trying to live up to that tremendous performance, and nobody can do that. Nobody can out Alan Rickman, Alan Rickman. And that's the other thing you want to ask is, are they making a sequel to the books or the movies? Are you bound to make things represent what we saw on the screen? Or can you go back and find artistic license and find, again, I would argue, particularly in those early movies, they ignored things about the book that, you know, you could bring to the stage. One thing I know they did do, they made a Black Hermione. And so they really didn't want you to be thinking at all about Emma Watson. They made that hard, distinct choice of nobody will see her when we have this Hermione. Yeah, and doing things on the stage, I think from the pictures that I saw in this other book, how they did the sorting hat, how, what Hagrid looked like. They took light, the Dementors, they are shades of what we thought you knew from the movies, from the illustrations in the book, and they're a third version of them, which is exactly what you want on a stage production. So yes, it makes complete sense to me. The other thing is, I'm sure they had a lot of money to put this on stage, but you want to think about ways of keeping the cast manageable. I mean, this feels like a story that has hundreds of people. You'll notice that some of the same actors play multiple roles. Stuart, this costs $68 million Woo-wee! and is 42 cast members for a play. 42. Right. That's unheard of for a play. For a right. play, it's like about a handful of people, a dozen. For a Shakespearean play, maybe 18 maybe, right? You got 42 people. That's crazy. But again, what they do is they'll have the same person playing Umbridge, playing McGonagall, and they found ways because there's no big scene where everyone's on stage at once. They found ways to compress where they could. But I think the thought, and I get it, is we want to give Harry Potter fans everything. The reason why it's two nights, the reason why you go back and put on scenes we already know happened is because for many fans, that's the delight. To see what they know on stage, to see it represented in tactile, real, before-their-eyes fashion. Many people would have just been happy if they did Sorcerer's Stone in this way. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I would see Sorcerer's Stone on stage or maybe a musical version of Harry Potter yeah. one day. 
that is weird, right? Uh, that was the one thing I thought for sure. There is a soundtrack to this. I played it while I read. It's done by the musical artist Imogene Heap. I don't know if you know her work. Hide and Seek is kind of her big hit. She's kind of like the British Dido. She's kind of a new agey, electronica kind of sound. And she did good work. There's a lot of atmosphere. And she did do some vocal stuff, layering, texturing kind of stuff. But no songs. They do not have Harry singing at any point. I read that she didn't write that much new music, that she took samples of previously written songs of her own or alternate takes of songs that she already had to create the soundtrack here. So mm. uh, because the the director really liked her music already. So that's kind of fun, too. I could say I honestly didn't hear like Hedwig's theme or anything, anything that you associate with right. the movie themes. It wasn't there, but it was a lot of like she's kind of like Enya, like like her voice layered 100 times over kind of sounds. That sounds something I could, I would enjoy. I did not think about even after I read I'm like, oh gosh, that's a good idea, Stuart. I should probably look that up, and I will in the next few days. I had a laugh in Act 4. Of course, they go back to 1981, right before Delphi is going to go back and kill Harry Potter so Voldemort doesn't have to, uh, or stop Voldemort from killing Harry at all, is that the way the boys communicate with the future is through the baby blanket, and it already popped in my head, because so often on this show, now playing, we talk about the Chekhov's gun, and so I laughed to myself thinking, oh, Chekhov's baby blanket is, <laughs> they put it in act one and he rejects the baby blanket and it comes back in act four as like linchpin of how they, how they solve this entire mess. Chekhov's baby blanket. I mean, Chekhov did write for the stage. I mean, that's, that's exactly. <laughs> yes. It's a little more appropriate, but I just made myself laugh thinking, oh, Arnie's, if I don't say it first, Arnie might think of it too. <laughs> Because we always use that expression. Yeah, I actually didn't think of it. I, but yeah, good point. They bring that up. It's such a lame gift. Oh, I gave a deathly hallow to your older brother. Take my stinky ass baby blanket. <laughs> if it was Superman's baby blanket, that's something. <laughs> but it's Harry Potter's baby blanket, which wasn't really in the movies that I can recall. But that's no. okay. And honestly, the Dursleys don't seem the type that would have kept his baby blanket, nor does he seem, when he's leaving the Dursley home for the last time, that he'd be sentimental enough to take a baby blanket. Oh, Harry, I believe, wants it. Again, it means a lot to Harry, this moment. And, you know, it's just a way of trying to connect to the idea of the moment he lost his own parents. And they're going to try to do something at the end where his son got to actually... I don't know if they met, but observe on afar the parents and be able to tell his dad things about that couple that he wouldn't have known. That was, I thought that was a nice touch. It allowed the themes to come through. It allowed it, this father and son that really have a lot of problems. Even at the end, there's a lot that they don't connect with each other on. They're in different houses, so to speak, mm -hmm. but they are able to connect over their family lineage. I think that's wise. I also like the scene where they all hear the Potters dying. And I can only imagine sitting in the audience, and it's all done by sound, right? Because they're not going to show you that. And just, the, I can't imagine not crying at that moment and having Harry and everyone else witness that, but not stopping it. Because as you know, if you know the Flash and Flashpoint or any other stories like this, if you stop the death of a loved one, the consequences, and we've already seen what the consequences can be throughout this play if you change time. So Harry knows the right thing to do is to let his parents die. And we all experience that, in, I guess, in present day, if you will, because he time traveled. And that is a moment that I greatly enjoyed reading. And just that played in my head as if a movie. It jumped off this page for me, that moment of being in the theater right there, 
watching, listening to that moment and what it means for our characters and what it means for Harry and his family. It's heartbreaking. What a great idea to put into the show. Yeah, I suspect that that would be a really powerful moment. And I do think it's a moment that you've been mentioning Back to the Future 2 a lot. A movie I don't really like. I will go with it feels like it's a wonderful life. It feels like we've we've gotten with that theme of what if I never existed? Oh, okay. Well, this is it's important to go through everything we did, including the pain, in order to have the life we do. That message rings clearer because we're able to relive that horrible moment of the parents' murder. I wish that moment would resonate more, and I think it would on stage, but because the stage directions here were so dramatic of Harry slumping to the ground, Harry grabs their hands, he's not standing on his own anymore. I mean, they're not writing this to really have an impact, they're writing this to tell somebody what to do, but it kind of took me out of the moment. I was far more impressed by trying to envision how they would do the massive magic fight that came right before this versus this moment. Sure, sure. I don't think that was in my copy. I don't remember reading that, but it it, it could be entirely possible that I don't recall that because I was picturing it in my head and what the parts I do remember, right? You have to have your director's hat on. You have to be thinking about how you would stage it and be filling in a lot of the details because... Again, it is a screenplay. It is not meant to be read with the idea that it's complete. I I disagree with Brock subtly in the sense that you can read plays. You know a good play from a bad play reading them, but it will never feel like a complete experience because it's only the blueprint. It's not the house. So when I read plays when I was a younger man, when I was a performer, uh, I would read plays. And when the characters jump off the page, when I understand the character at a base level, because the first time you read it or second time you read it, you have to really get into a play to really understand these characters well. But the best plays can jump off the page when you can really get what the characters are going through and the connections and things like that almost right away, in my opinion. Here, the characters in my did not really jump to me enough, especially in that first part. So as we talked about, it kind of feels repetitive and not deep enough but towards the end of the play the second act especially when things went awry from what we know that's where this play can really shine on the page it really read so much better than that first part did so part two for me was a much better experience than part one reading it as a play versus needing to see it completely on stage i was able to enjoy the visuals and the reading for part two. Part one for me, especially the first half of part one, was a very difficult journey. And just jumping on that, I wouldn't say any of it was difficult, but I did feel that there was fan servicing, if not fan fiction, the indulgence of trying to live through so much Harry Potter that people already appreciated made the play that they were trying to tell get lost sometimes. But I I will say, emerging from this experience, this was a whole lot better than I thought it would be. I thought that it would be a fan service, and I really felt like they were trying to tell a play about fathers and sons, which is classic theater subject matter. And probably if you pared it down to one night, you could probably really get at that in a way that would be powerful. And we're going to get a chance to see it that way, Stuart, if we ever get a chance to see it, because it's no longer being offered as two parts. Or I want to point out, it's been suggested Chris Columbus, as of last year, was was beating the drum that he is ready to come back and film this as a movie. I guess the holdout is Daniel Radcliffe is like, nope, I'm not ready to do this yet, if ever. I hope he doesn't do it. I hope they don't do it. I hope they decide not to do it. But of course, it only comes down to how long, how much money, and where's my career at? Because the fact that the three of them can come back to do this, it seems far-fetched to me. What he said was, he's never saying never to 
Harry Potter. I just read an interview two days ago that he was doing about the Weird Al thing. He's never saying never, but he looks at the Star Wars people, and they had, like, 20, 30 years off between Return of the Jedi and coming back in The Force Awakens. And... For him, it's only been 10 years because he's looking at when did Deathly Hallows 2 come out? Not when did I start, but when did I finish? And he wants definitely more time between. And it seems like his career's going swimmingly. He's in a movie right now with Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, and Brad Pitt. He's going to be in the Weird Al movie. He doesn't need Harry Potter. It could damage him more than it could help his career at this point. So I'm wondering if when he turns mid-30s, when he's actually the age of this character in this story, would he be amenable? I don't think he has to say no to this. I think that Cursed Child is good, probably better on stage than it would be as a movie, but I hope he definitely says no to Chris Columbus. Like, that is not... You don't want to end up in a fairy-sprinkled stepmom. Like, that's... No. We don't want to make that... He is not the guy to tell this kind of intimate story, for sure. And not only that, you can have the three of them who are old enough, and you can cast the kids, not a problem, but Dumbledore, Snape, McGonagall. I mean... Alan Rickman, as you already called out, has already passed away. Michael Gambon is is not well. They're going to have to recast all of those parts. They can't possibly do a computer re- uh, recreation for all of them. Oh, yes, they could. For all of them? I don't know if they can do all of them. Sure, by that point, if we're talking 10, 15 years from now, the technology will be good enough that they could. We can rebuild them. We can make them look stronger, <laughs> younger. <laughs> Well, fine. I will stand corrected. And when they when they do that, and we'll be here uh, now playing podcast to talk about the movie version of The Cursed Child, whatever form they decide to put it in next. But this is the end of the road for our Books and Nachos Harry Potter journey. But wait, you say, there's more Harry Potter books with J.K. Rowling's name on them, you say. Yes, so they said, and so I read them, and they're not. What they are is compilations of content that she put out on her website, Pottermore, which we've discussed before when we got sorted. You can go there and get sorted yourself. You can get Patronuses. But there's like these entries are three short story collections, or so they're called. But they're really not stories. They're not at all stories. They are backstories of different teachers, about Hogwarts itself, about characters, about spells. It kind of reads like Harry Potter wiki, the backstories you read there about McGonagall's life or Umbridge had one. So... In a way, it was interesting, but then the Slughorn story you basically got already from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. It didn't read any differently, just it really felt like a Wikipedia thing. So after I read these things, there's nothing we could say here and talk about for any length of time. You'll see if you pick up the first book, it's just basically, much like the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, it's just an alphabetical listing of different kinds of creatures. It's not really a narrative. It's just a bunch of Wikipedia entries. There's nothing really to talk about there. I think she did it for charity, right? My sense is that these other things, the history of Quidditch and the history of magic, and yeah, she did publish a book called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, but it's not a novel. It's not a story. It's an encyclopedia. It's just kind of fun for the rabid fan that wants everything. But we included Cursed Child because it actually continued the saga. These things just sort of add detail work in the background. Correct. And Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and the other one was done for charity. I believe these are the ones, the short stories I'm talking about are directly from Pottermore, released on Amazon, only in Kindle editions. They're not even putting them in hard format. 
So yes, it's not for anything but promotion or for charity, not because she wants to continue the stories of Harry Potter. So Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is not a book version of the movie Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which we reviewed a few weeks ago at NowPlayingPodcast.com for donors. No, but you can read the screenplay of which she published with her name on it because she wrote the screenplay. So you can go to Amazon.com and purchase a screenplay. So I thank you for all the Books and Nachos listeners for joining us for our seven years at Hogwarts. And then we did a, you know, I always had trouble leaving school, high school, college, grad school. I always hung around like longer than I should have DJing at the radio station or what have you. So we hung around Hogwarts a little longer than we should have with this curse child but this is the end of that but not the end of new books and nachos episodes there is a new movie version of firestarter coming out in a couple weeks we are reviewing that over at now playing and while it may not be ready in time for the movie i am putting the finishing touches on the return to the stephen king books and nachos with a review of firestarter which conveniently enough is the next book chronologically in that series oh good i was so hoping you would pick that up we do have a new zach efron somehow is in firestarter I don't know. He can't beat David Keith for my money. Yeah, maybe. But again, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And then later in the summer, we will, as we cover our Silver Level series at now playing of the Twilight franchise, Jacob and I are going to be diving into those books. Notice Jacob and Stuart, I noped the hell out of that yeah. one. <laughs> You're like, that'll be fun for you. <laughs> maybe. And I thank everyone for listening to Books and Nachos. I thank Brock and Stuart for joining me for all these weeks. I hope you are able to join us for all of the Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts bonus movie reviews. They are all available now for donors at NowPlayingPodcast.com. It is your support that keeps both of these podcasts going, Now Playing and Books and Nachos. So thank you for your support of independent podcasting. And also remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. They do not have Harry singing at any point. I would love the Avada Kedavra song. I just would. Sure. I, I would. But it'd be like Hakuna Matata. <laughs> <laughs> Avada Kedavra. What a killing phrase. Yeah. Uh, so the. Um, that's just terrible. Uh, so. I'm just thinking Avara, Avara Kedavra. I'm going to reach out and grab you. Oh, you went to Steve Miller Band. <laughs> yeah, it's better. I like that one better. Um, 